Hey, the legal eagles over at Shout Factory want me to point out that this podcast does not represent Alterniversal, Shout Factory, or the Kickstarter campaign in any official capacity. It is made by fans, for fans, and anyone else who loves the show. Plus, we smell nice and we brush our teeth. Thank you. And greetings, Earthlings, from the Roof Lizard Lounge, high atop the Dino Hotel in beautiful Lakewood, Colorado, just 15 minutes away from downtown Denver and Red Rocks Amphitheater. And if you are listening to today's podcast, it means you successfully survived last week's Halloween invasion of Earth by bloodthirsty Martians. So congratulations. Uh, that was that was actually a fictional radio program, Greg. It was a, what, what, a dramatization. There what, were no Martians. What do you... What do you I realize this this is a problem that's happened before with you, but uh, yeah, it was it was a radio program. As a matter of fact, you were one of the stars of the radio program. I didn't want my hamster to suffer, and so I strangled it. One of the writers. You 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 helped write this thing. Oh dear lord. Okay, so uh, apparently uh, there was not an actual invasion of uh, Earth, but there was a spooktacular uh, Halloween oh, radio play. Uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, first of all, uh, never say spooktacular again. Uh, yeah, we chilltastic. Uh, no. Okay. Just stay away from portmanteaus altogether. Uh, yeah, we did a fully dramatized radio play of War of the Worlds. Uh, hopefully, you've listened to it. Otherwise, this podcast isn't going to make a lot of sense to you because we had just a ton of fun with this. But it was a really a complex undertaking. So we just wanted to sort of do a, a roundup of of how it got made and who was in it and who did what. Uh, so this is that podcast. This is the DVD extra, if you will, the making of War of the Worlds. And uh, by the way, uh, you can find this radio broadcast if you haven't had a chance yet to listen. Uh, it's out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, uh, YouTube, and elsewhere. It's available for streaming or download. So we hope you'll you'll seek out one of those regular channels and um, li- listen in, tune in, because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, we're uh, we're joined in studio today by Eric Kosky, who was in the show. Uh, we'll also be getting uh, audio postcards from the rest of the Revival League gang. Uh, who contributed to to the show, either voices or writing or both. Um, This is sort of, as I said, this is meant to be a director's cut commentary, like a DVD extra, about how we made this show. Uh, First of all, Greg and I uh, wrote the the script with of the, the main story. Uh, that was so. So you know, the quality is even worse than it should be. Well. And, I have to say the quality was excellent because I limited your participation in the writing process. Hey, every every <laughs> part I scribbled in and crayon is beautiful. <laughs> um, now we uh, we we came at it with a, a specific intent, and hopefully we've succeeded, and that was to be uh, funny as funny as possible, but also have parts that were legitimately frightening. Yeah, you know, try we, to make it spooky or chill. Yeah, I mean we knew that people weren't going to be screaming and running through the streets, but we wanted things that. 
were a little bit freaky. You know, we wanted scenes where, you know, uh, the the unsettling nature of the scene was real, you know. Yeah, because, I mean, part of the fun of any version of War of the Worlds that's worth its weight is it should give you a little chill up your spine. And, yeah. I mean, I always get this just this good, creepy feeling when I listen to the original uh, 39 or, or 38 uh, Orson Welles radio mm-hmm. uh, broadcast. When, when I see the Steven Spielberg 2005 movie, I mean, those, those are genuinely unsettling scenes. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to, like, be funny but not make it all pratfalls and, and, and silliness uh, and really let the piece breathe and, and have, uh, you know, some of the original flavor that War of the Worlds does so well from the H.G. Uh, Wells source material, uh, hopefully all the way through our work. So. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, we wanted to go for sort of spooky and irreverent. And, uh, I mean, I think there are a couple of places where hopefully we we accomplished the spooky Uh uh, I'm thinking specifically of like the Battle of New York was sort of uh, the, the end of that. Uh, even listening to it, I uh, when editing, I, I think it got a little bit of a it was, it was a creepy vibe, uh, you know, the, because of the way all of the screaming just sort of goes away, and you're just left with the sounds of these giant metal things stalking through a city where everybody's dead. You know, it, it was a bit creepy. Uh, so I hopefully we accomplished that. That was our intent anyway. Uh, well, yeah, and uh, we, because we we had to record this on a busy Saturday, uh, this being not not the radio broadcast, but the making of uh, extra. Uh, because we had to record this on a busy Saturday when not everyone could be in studio or Skype in and join us, uh, we've asked for uh, all the other podcast members who participated because uh, the entire Revival League w- was in there in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we asked for them to make some audio No, the entire Revival League podcast, friends of the podcast, the, you know, not the entire – Eleven thousand member <laughs> well, Facebook page. The crew, you know, the crew, the gang, yeah. the gang, the the, 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 the usual suspects. Um, yeah, usual suspects, uh, including Kaiser Soze. But uh, we we asked uh, everybody to prepare some audio postcards just to tell us about uh, their experiences. Uh, and before making... we before we go to that, we ought to say a little about the, how we recorded this. Uh, you know, because we the, we're oh absolutely doing audio postcards because we couldn't get everybody together, and that was you know very much. The way we had to record the original uh, show, too, we, we recorded a lot of people's parts separately. Yeah, uh, we're scattered all over the country. Yeah, you know? and uh, I mean, we did one sort of marathon recording day where we got most of the actors in uh, to do their parts with the other actors. But in a lot of cases, we had to record parts separately, and we generally ended up using solo audio uh of each of the people, even if they recorded with another person. So uh, basically we had to put it together sentence by sentence and most most of the scenes were, were assembled line by line uh, with, with different audio files. But uh, these guys did such a good job with, with the parts that in most cases you cannot tell that they're basically talking to a wall. You know, it sounds like a real conversation. I was really impressed uh, with the performances that, uh, that like Ron and, and Kate and James – uh, and Eric had turned in, and, and Eric, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean everybody in the revival league, even uh, you know Dina Dolphin. Uh, just we needed one part, and she was cool to just record a single line as a cameo. So everybody was really cool uh, about uh, um, showing up and doing their part. But uh, because of the the fragmented nature of the cast. We did have to uh, record this and insert their recollections 
later. So as Greg said, uh, they, they made some audio postcards. So uh, let's roll the tape. Yeah. Good evening. This is Ron McAdams. You might remember me from various Revival League podcasts, 10 Backwards, or any other shenanigans the Revival League gets up to these days. In any case, my job tonight is to walk you through a series of audio postcards from some of the voice talent that wasn't able to be there the night that Ryan, Greg, and Eric did their initial recap episode. So sit back and relax. Our first interview is with Mr. James Rowling. Hey, how are you doing this evening, uh, James? Hey, Ron, I'm doing great. How are you? Oh my gosh, I, I'm so glad that you took time out of your busy schedule so that we could record this audio postcard uh, that we could share with all of our fr- uh, f- friends at the Revival League about the upcoming War of the Worlds uh, radio play. But Ron, what is an audio postcard? Well, an audio postcard is when the recording schedule for the wrap-up episode is set at a time when you can't attend. So you can, at a later date, record something and then submit it, and it's almost like you're there. Almost. Just just, oh. just by a little bit. Yes. It's it's sort of like, uh, it, it, it's, it's like, hey, we want to involve you, but, I mean, just on our schedule. Right. Exactly. Which is fine. We love those guys. Yeah, they're, they're great. They're I know it's great of all the three hosts of the revival league podcast. I like Kate Ryan and Greg best. I, I think Ryan, Kate, Greg are, they're a good people. Good person. Yes. Very great person. Yes. Let me ask you this. What was your favorite part about working on the war of the world's radio play? I really appreciated that Ryan gave me the opportunity to play as a uh, Dr. Clayton Forrester. <laughs> I, I know that's that was, kind of a cherry sort of yeah cherry sort of role there. It was so good, and just being able, you know, uh, trying to perfect my Doctor Clayton voice. Just, just you know, as, everyone has their killer peck impersonation. Yeah, you have to find the Clayton in you. Um, and that was a lot of fun, and and you know, getting to work with uh, Ryan and his vision was uh, was pretty and amazing because he had it down, and he would be like, uh, "Nope, we need to do that one again." Do it again, and then you know, yeah. just till he it was the way he wanted it, and it was so much fun to do that. Yeah, it was fun. It was. Uh, I really like. I think my favorite part was sitting around doing the table read, just where everybody could kind of try things out and do different voices oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah. and play around and and pitching the commercials and kind of coming up with fun ideas on that. Oh, front. Those commercials were so much fun. I know. I that was probably. Uh, I, I keep saying everything's my favorite part. I, I enjoyed the whole experience. Uh, but I found the uh, creating commercials and doing the stuff for that uh, inoffensive. Oh yeah, uh, your commercial on uh, Burr, I just I died. That was such a I, good idea. It's been a little while. It's oh yeah yeah the where it wasn't Burr it was or was it Burr it was it, or cause, it's cause Hamilton it was it, yeah. was it was it was the reverse Hamilton it was about that's right Burr getting the comeuppance on Hamilton. That's right. It's like that Puerto Rican's getting his comeuppance. Yeah, two hundred years. Who knows? <laughs> Someone else is going to write this other play. So get get tickets now. So. Oh yeah, no, no, it was great. Yeah, no, I had a great time writing all that stuff. It was kind of fun. My, my favorite thing is is because I I grew up in Illinois, so we kind of got all the weird like I uh, Central Illinois. So you kind of you get all the weird Chicagoland commercials like Queen of Carpet and and the um, Empire and and all those type oh, of yeah, things. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. See, you get some of that fun stuff like, too. Gee, so it's great it's, floors. Yeah, 
<laughs> exactly. The floors look great. <laughs> so, but I, I like um, like Mac and all those guys. Oh, yeah, and yeah, good, yeah. Good, good news for people with credit problems. <laughs> He's such a funny guy. So, and then everybody likes um, uh, the the oh hello people. So it's you know everybody likes. Uh, Nick Kroll and Mulaney, uh, John Mulaney doing that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know. Anyway, outside, you know, it's crazy. Uh, we, we live in a bad neighborhood. Of course you heard gunshots. So <laughs> it's just doing some of that stuff, too, is a lot of fun. Yeah, um, I, I had a lot of – I really also uh, – I like the the story of War of the Worlds to begin with. Um, I mean, that – I remember my father buying uh, a newer edition of it, but like a newer edition in the nineties, uh, done by a full cast. And, and that's what really got me into wanting to watch more sci-fi was war of the worlds. So you, you got the version, the updated version where it's, um, Maurice LaMarche doing Orson Welles voice instead of Orson Welles doing Orson Welles voice. I can't remember who the actors were. I just remember it was on a CD and my father bought it and was like, we got to listen to this. No, I remember it's as a kid, you would kind of like around Halloween time, you would uh, you would have the family like the PBS, the local public radio station would play it or something like that just for just for fun. Right. Right. And uh, so I've I've. I've listened to it a number of times. I've seen the movie a number of times. I think I read the the little short story like once a million years ago. But um, as part of going back and doing this, um, kind of thumbing through and seeing where it was like, oh, we got to hit this beat. So it's absolutely in the radio play script where it's, hey, we got to have this. We got to have this element. Um Something that sort of um, you know pays tribute to the radio play, but then also uh, plays tribute to the written word, and yeah, it's interesting. It it really is. And what uh, what was your favorite uh, character to play in this uh, show? Uh, you know, I kind of like doing Fry's dad's voice from Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> so it's. But I, I don't know. There's there's other stuff. It's I, I did a number of like little tiny roles. Um, like there's one where uh, I can't remember the character's name. I feel terrible. I don't have my script in front of me, but it's I'm all over the place in this thing. Um, but there's a character. It's the reporter. And it's I think we have the scene earlier and then at the end where he's like just talking about the, the destruction there um, where the um, the little aliens are kind of coming in and they're killing everybody on the street and it's you had to really you had to emote you had to have real emotion in your voice when you said these things and it's you know that it's it's funny making's one thing but it's it's another thing to be like you had to act a tiny bit you did in this to kind of because some of it is yeah there's jokes there there's some there's some jokes but at the same time there is there's some parts of this that i played for my my son who's nine and he's like ooh, it's like goosebumpy yeah yeah stuff. So. and i i was playing an understudy to one of the uh, other actors in the in the show and i had to deliver a line that ryan thought was just heart-wrenching because i was playing it really sad and he thought it was this the i think the uh, line was uh that was a real cock punch and ryan thought like that, the, that was one of the things i edited around for the nine-year-old oh yeah but. yeah 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 
But Ryan likes the uh, the de- like just the the thick desperation in my voice of just like, oh man, really? Oh. Well, I I heard it at the table read, and it was funny. It was it was it was uh, maudlin yet uh, comedic. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I can't wait for people to listen. It's, and I'm sure that by the time that this all kind of comes together, our little audio postcard, that people are going to have had a, had a chance to listen. And I hope that they um, sort of take away kind of like how much fun it was to make it and also all the production that went into yeah, it. Yeah, Ryan's just kicking ass. Oh my gosh, like just all the sound effects and stuff. This was not a cheap production, no. that's for sure. This sounds easily on par with something that I would hear from like a, a sort of a, a, a more well-known sort of um, radio play company or something like that. Like like a, um, oh, who are those people out in the desert with all their freaky happenings and their, their Oh, Coast to Coast AM clouds. with George Norrie. <laughs> No, <laughs> those people in the in the desert, um, Night Vale. Yeah, it's, oh, it's okay. kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's. There's some cool music and there's some cool sound effects and it's it all just kind of comes together. So it does. It's it. great. It was, it was a lot, a lot of, fun. of fun. It. Oh my god, Jinx. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Oh my mm. god. Now we're out forever. We can't. Neither one of us can speak. I'm not buying you a Coke. <laughs> so, well, uh, again. Uh, James, it was good to talk to you. Yeah, you and, too. Uh, on this hopefully, uh, audio podcast. Yeah, and and hopefully when we Postcard. put the sound file inside of a uh, Coke bottle and put a cork in it and throw it out in the ocean, that it'll find its intended party, and uh, they can add us to this uh, sort of roundup uh, remembrance of uh, of podcasts past. We could always just Gmail. I mean, there's always that option. <laughs> I guess I guess there is electronic mail as well. All right, thank you. Whoever the hell that was. Yeah, we don't know. We're, we're, we're <laughs> inserting that in post edit. Well, we'll, we'll uh, it'll sound great. Trust us. Um, so, thank you, Ron McAdams. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, when that's Erica, that's gonna be super awkward. <laughs> so uh, this a whole idea got started because uh, when we did last year, 2016. I mean, we've been working on this for a year. Yeah. And last year, 2016, uh, we recorded a just a regular Halloween episode uh, of the podcast. And uh, we decided, you know, Ryan and I were, were brainstorming like, well, how do we top ourselves next year for 2017 Halloween? And One we, could argue we could top most of our podcasts by simply easily. not recording a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but we, we said, you know, we both realized, man, we love War of the Worlds, you know, like mm-hmm. in all its iterations and versions. Why don't why don't we do our own comedy retelling of War of the Worlds? And so, like, as early as uh, October or November, early November of 2016, we were putting together samples of uh, what some of the uh, battles would sound like. Mm-hmm. I, I found some of the early uh, Martian war machine noises all the way back of last yeah, year. Yeah, we kept those noises. You know, those and, are the same ones we ended up using. And like, uh, yeah, and like I put together the Battle of New York uh, a year ago, a year ago, and yeah. just sat on it, and we weren't sure if we were going to get around to it or not. So, um, yeah, the entire sound effect uh, thing that runs under the Battle of New York, uh, I think there there's sound effects that I put in 
during the, the conversation between Eric and Ron. Like the black smoke. And uh, and the rest of it is simply, you know, and, and that's, you know, I made it sure to match to what you were doing in the battle sequence. And then once the, the shit starts going down, it's all something you put together. A year ago. <laughs> well, yeah, and and, and like uh, uh, we, Thanksgiving rolled around. We had Turkey Day at the hotel. A whole bunch of people in house, uh, like a, a studio audience here in the podcast studio, <laughs> and we told them we were doing War of the Worlds. And we initially said we'll probably do it for uh, April Fool's Day, twenty seventeen. But that was such a busy time that we decided Halloween was indeed our, our launch date. And, yeah, and uh, it just makes more sense. On yeah, Halloween and, too. and and so like August of this year, I said, hey. Ryan, you want to get back to it? Mm-hmm. And you were like, hell yeah. So uh, you quickly pounded out uh, an excellent script. And uh, I mean, it's really Ryan's baby. I mean, it's totally Ryan's baby. And it's it's Greg, it's uh, Ryan Smith with Greg Talley because you, you asked me to do a pass on, mm-hmm. on the, the second edit. And most of my suggestions were Easter eggs and in-jokes honoring H.G. Yeah. Wells. So Yeah, yeah. A lot of the uh, – the- the really esoteric Wells references are, are, are Greg's uh, because uh, I like War of the Worlds. Greg is a, a, a scholar about War of the Worlds. Oh, shucks, ma'am. But no, <laughs> it's uh, I sit down with my daughter Caroline and we listen to and watch all these different versions of War of the Worlds. And it's kind of one of our bonding things. And so we've read the novel together. Uh, we've, you know, watched the Spielberg version together and listened to the radio play because we just, we love that good, uh, creepy feeling you get, you know, when, when you, uh, are imagining the world being taken over by a malevolent, uh, alien force. But Ryan, uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. He said malevolent. So yeah, Donald Trump yeah. is malevolent. Oh. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call him malevolent. I, I don't, that doesn't seem like a strong enough word. Uh, too too milk toasty but I mean so okay if you're not familiar with War of the Worlds I mean why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, like how it came to be yeah well I mean if you're not aware uh, War of the Worlds is a science fiction novel by uh, Herbert George Wells uh, H.G. Wells Uh, and if you don't know that War of the Worlds is by H.G. Wells drown yourself uh, because you're uh, cultural illiterate at this point but uh, what you may not know, it was first serialized in 1897. A lot of people probably don't know it's that late. It's almost into the 20th century. Uh, by Pearson's Magazine in the UK, uh, Cosmopolitan serialized it in the US. A lot of novels in the early, uh, uh, really the mid through the late 19th century were serialized in popular magazines before they were came out as single volumes. Uh, all of Sherlock Holmes, basically. Uh, all of Dickens, basically. Uh, but... Uh, it was first published in hardcover after serialization. It was uh, in uh, 1898 by uh, publisher William Heinemann of London. Uh, there's another there's another name I uh, stole and forgot where I got it from. We have a a uh, William Heinemann in the pl- in the uh, radio play. He's uh, one of the first field reporters we talked to. Uh, and the thing is, we wrote what the first maybe five pages a year ago. And then came back to it. Yeah, we did proof of concept with both some sound. And uh, a couple of pages of script yeah. to make sure we could get the jokes in. And it may be five pages of script. And the the interesting thing is by the time we started writing again, I knew I had gotten some names, some of the names of the characters from somewhere, but I'd forgotten where. Uh, William Heineman is a, a radio reporter in our show, and he was actually the publisher in London who first published the hardcover of War of the Worlds. 
Um, and this is uh, this is one of the very first stories that uh, details a, a conflict between uh, humans and and an extraterrestrial race. Uh, so this is this is the grandfather of alien invasion stories. Uh, we do not have wonderful pieces of cinema like uh, Battle L.A. and <laughs> Independence Day 2, if not for War of the Worlds. So thanks, Herb. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when we did this, I mean, we, we could have just done Ryan's radio play and it would have been a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I, I don't know about but you. But Greg felt the need to ruin it. I, I had to get in there and just fuck it all up. No, <laughs> I, no I, I really wanted there to be Easter eggs and in-jokes honoring H.G. Uh, Wells uh, because there's a lot of themes and tropes uh, in the source material that are in the Wells novel mm-hmm. but not – that didn't make it into the Orson Wells uh, radio play. Yeah. And uh, – but uh, we felt these were important uh, themes uh, in the original source material in the story. So um, like uh, Ryan, I mean t- tell us a little bit about the preface and the epilogue. Well, yeah. First of all, we stuck with the original preface and the original epilogue from the novel. Uh, uh, that's uh, the, the beginning and end speeches by – uh, Wash Perry, uh, your character, Greg, are Wells's original name uh, or, or Wells's original words. I think I changed one thing in the postscript. I I eliminate I substituted the void for sidereal space because I wasn't sure that that was you know that was such an archaic term that I felt like we we needed to do something a little closer to what people could identify with. But other than that, it's... And you added a punchline to the preface. Yes. Know? Yeah, I did add but, a punchline to the preface. But you just, you can't improve on Wells' original language. At no, the it's beginning beautiful and, and of, chilling. I mean, yeah, it's 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 terrifying. It's just, it's a well, just well-crafted prose. And... Well, as, 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 uh, as both a writer and a bit of a ham uh, in, in terms of, of acting... Uh, I have a, a ham, you know, just like a, a, a hammy guy. Who, who I know what I know what a ham is as an actor. I'm just I'm I'm wonder about the qualifier of a bit. Okay, a, a complete. Yeah, there you go. Um, I have admired especially the preface to you know with the the intellects uh, vast and cool and unsympathetic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. And I think in the 2005 uh, version, uh, I think it was Morgan it Freeman. It was Morgan Freeman who did that. So you got you put words in my character's mouth that were like uh, written by H.G. Wells and voiced by Morgan Freeman. And rather than being daunted, I was just like <laughs> All right, this is this is super cool and exciting. I, like, I mean, it, it sets the mood perfectly. You can't improve on no. Wells's, you know, you want that. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that Orson Welles started his radio play with something like that. I I'm, I think he did, and and it's just you can't improve on it. No, it, it had to be in there, and 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 then like the next one was okay. We may have botched the pronunciation, but I think it's. Walking. I think you're right. I think it's walking and not woking. W o k i n g. That's the uh, London suburb uh, in the Wells H uh, e Wells source material where the Martians first land in their cylinder. Yeah. And uh, Orson Wells, he you know he said it in uh, the the New York City area. Yeah, and, and his, suburban and that was areas. Grover's Mill. Grover's Mill, New Jersey, was and, where he had the 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 the, uh, the first cylinder land, and we. We went with the Orson Welles setting of uh, uh, Depression-era New York and environs. So uh, we wanted 
to put it in New Jersey. But, uh, Greg, I think you suggested that we we sort of honor the original novel as well. So we we did a mashup. It's, it became Walking Mill instead of Grover's Mill. So we would have a callback to the original novel. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, what the hell, let's just do a mashup and, mm-hmm. and take the two landing sites and, and see who gets it. Yeah. Now, as far as uh, uh, the Martians themselves, uh, you know, you don't get a, a, a huge de- amount of description in the uh, in the radio play because they right away climb into their tripods. You know, you get a little bit of a suggestion that they're pretty ugly. Um, but uh, when it came to the tripods, I mean, doing that, creating something like that out of sound is a challenge. And we really wanted to be true to the novel, you know, a very steampunk, you know, a Victorian gentleman's idea of what a futuristic weapon would be. Heat rays, black smoke, chemical warfares, you know, for chemical warfare, the cylinders as landing ships uh, and and these giant stalking tripods, not some big Hollywoodization of it. Uh, no, we, we absolutely wanted the Martian weaponry to be 100% faithful, you know, no whoopee cushions or any kind of cheap jokes. I mean, they, they, they are the central menace mm-hmm. of the other and the stalking monsters and the yeah. and, and the and the implacable destructive force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not even and, and I think the most chilling thing about the the tripods and the cylinders is not that they're possibly evil. They're just indifferent. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's as to them, it's as evil as us swatting a fly. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that's like how irrelevant uh, and weak humanity is in the face of these. Uh, what was the character? There was a movie where a, a character said something about does an ant reason with a boot? You know, I mean, that's basically. You know, they're they're indifferent to us because we're not worthy of consideration. Yeah. Uh, which is a real question about, you know, the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Would they think anything more of us than we think of slaughtering cows? Well, I mean, Stephen Hawking and, and I mean, like, you know, some of the smartest people of our age uh, are terrified about the idea of uh, uh, contact with alien races because they, they believe, you know, they'll have the upper hand. And it'll be worse than uh, Colombian contact, you know. Yeah. Uh, with uh, the old world discover, you know, not discovering, but invading the new. Yeah, you know, uh, well, you know, of course, the only, uh, the only analog we have for that kind of situation is uh, a more technologically advanced group of humans discovering a less technologically advanced group of humans, and how humans tend to act. So, well, yeah, and and even if the, their intentions were good, the ability to spread disease, yeah, and yeah, things like that. So, I mean, and, and clearly, when Wells wrote this, he meant it to be. Oh, it was anti-colonial. Yeah, it's a total, it's a total slam on colonialism, which is odd because H. G. Wells was actually a pretty horrible human being as far as uh, eugenicist and you know the pure race and all of that you know he was he was a big eugenics uh, supporter um, in the uh, in the early 20th century but yeah this was definitely a slam on colonialism you know it was basically I think I remember reading and I don't know if it's true it might be one of those apocryphal tales but it was the genesis was that HG Wells and a friend were walking along and debating uh, the latest colonial adventure because Great Britain was big on colonialism. Um, and his friend said, well, how would you feel if a Martian ship suddenly landed in the field and they started taking over England? And apparently that was the genesis of the of the novel. Like, you know, a, a superior uh, technical civilization, you know, technologically superior civilization shows up and you have no hope. 
Well, yeah, and and it doesn't surprise me about H.G. Wells because all my childhood heroes uh, were apparently horrible human beings. You know, I mean, uh, like. Well, uh, I mean, I'm shocked that there's actually a Manson fan club, Greg, but I, I can definitely say you shouldn't be the president. Well, probably not, and uh, and it's it you know, hey, this this carved thing in my forehead, <laughs> it it doesn't uh, come off, baby. It's not a smudge. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> We went there. We just made our podcast horrible. Um, but just. you made it horrible. I did. So, uh, but but there were other themes that were not in uh, that were in the H.G. Uh, Wells material that were not in the Orson Welles radio play. And one of my favorite moments uh, is the HMS Thunderchild, mm-hmm. uh, and this was a torpedo ram uh, that, uh, like in Book Two, the flight from London bravely engages the Martian war machine so civilians can escape. And they actually take out one and then die in kind of a kamikaze suicide run trying to take out a a second one. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the Wells novel, they're not – the tripods – are superior technologically, but not invincible. But not invincible. Yeah. You know, they don't have force fields and, mm-hmm. and they can be stopped, but, you know, but it's mostly, you know, the, the, the British, you know, late 19th century technology is equivalent of throwing a spear at yeah. somebody holding an AK-47. Exactly. So it, it just, you know, it, it's not that you can't land. Yeah, the, you, can, you can land the blow, but it's just the, the, the overwhelming force of the opposition is eventually going to beat you. Yeah, yeah, and so so the Thunderchild, the HMS Thunderchild is is like one of the the bravest and most inspiring and interesting moments in uh, Wells's uh, novel. So w- we had to parody that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we we had to take it to the level of cheap comedy. So we went with the USS Thunderchild because uh, it's set in America, and uh, mm-hmm. we we just you know I love that moment in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We're with brave, brave Sir Robin who mm. bravely runs away. So our USS Thunderchild comes, you know, roaring in, ready to do battle with the tripod, takes a good long look, and then just tucks tail and, and, runs. and yeah. runs like crazy. So <laughs> that that On was, the upside, they survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they yeah, hey, and they weren't totally dumb. They got the hell out of there. So another thing uh that was uh, talking about invasive species, you know, in the Wells material. Uh, that made it into the Spielberg 2005 yep. movie was Red Weed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we didn't really belabor this, but we, you know, when we were brainstorming how to bring all of this Wellsian and, and World of the World stuff into the novel, mm-hmm. we just decided to, you know, we're from Colorado. I mean, come on. We decided that Red Weed was just too easy uh, to do as a pot joke. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. believe that made it into the uh, Orson Welles radio play i think that there was a, a pot little, joke no a, a, a <laughs> reference to the red vegetation i believe was was in the uh or some, i might be wrong about that but i think they it just wasn't something that we wanted to belabor because it really doesn't add that much to the plot well uh, so we just we mentioned it once made an easy pot joke and moved on absolutely cheap low-hanging fruit so um but there was an absolutely central plot point and one of the chief horrors of uh hd wells's uh source material was the insane curate and that's sort of like a vicar or a priest so uh, i mean ryan walk us through that uh yeah uh hg wells uh has a character and i mean i remember it from the very first time i ever read of any version of war of the worlds as being one of the most indelible characters uh that the narrator sort of hides out with for a time a crazy you know an insane curate you know who's convinced that this is god's judgment and 
he's you know just he raves and rants and the, he, there's a, a Tim Robbins plays a a, a version a, of a that. version of that in the uh, 2005 Spielberg yes. movie uh, and he rants and raves so loudly and badly that uh, it's alerting the Martians to where the protagonist the unnamed narrator and the curate are hiding and ultimately Wells's uh, narrator uh, knocks the curate out and basically just feeds him to the Martians. You know, he knows that's what's going to happen to the guy, but the guy is going to kill anybody he comes in contact with because he's going to alert the Martians to their presence. And it, and so it's like this chilling, central, brutal yeah. moment. Yeah, it's this, this like, I, I have to sacrifice part of my humanity in order to survive because I'm going to have to leave this guy to die. And 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 Wells had this massive disdain for the clergy. So, I mean, he created this weak, vacillating, raving, ranting mm-hmm. uh, priest who, you know, was utterly craven and, and like, um, just, you know, kills him off and dispatches yeah. him. But the way... The guy goes as the Martians like stuff him in a basket and then later drink his blood. Yeah. And, you know, and like you don't 100% see what happens to him, but the narrator alludes to finding like the body of the curate and it's all uh, exsanguinated. Yeah. God, that's a word you don't get to use enough. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and, and sort of desiccated. But uh, we decided just for the sake of comedy that we weren't just going to go with one insane curate. We were going to treat them like a box of Kleenex, <laughs> and uh, we had like a whole line of insane curates uh, for uh, Ryan's character, for Professor Pearson, to just chuck at the Martians willy-nilly. <laughs> yeah, he basically, every time he escapes the Martians, he does it by throwing a curate at them, <laughs> you know, to distract them while he makes his escape. Uh, yeah, I think he uh, he outright murders three and then just like, no, maybe four. He outright murders four uh, and uh, they're just lying all over the country yeah side. exactly so uh, uh, yeah it just became a running joke uh, which is basically uh, us just totally bastardizing this horrendous like emotionally fraught uh, scene in Wells about sacrificing part of your humanity in order to survive and uh, our guy just he doesn't seem that bothered <laughs> no no he, he's just Happy to chuck. He just chuck chucks them. the curates at the at the uh, uh, at the Martians willy nilly just to to get to the next uh, you know to escape. Well, there was another moment, uh, Ryan, that I loved in in the eighteen nineties novel, uh, and that's when uh, the narrator's brother. Like, there's a whole segment of the book, like the flight from London, where it's not the narrator it's it's his brother retelling mm-hmm. the tale and the brother is like fleeing from uh from london like in this big mass of refugees who are just scrambling yeah. to get out of the way of the advancing uh, martian tripods and uh he uh the the brother comes across uh, the dying uh, chief justice lord garrick so tell us about that uh, yeah, he uh, he finds Lord Garrick dying of thirst under a hedge, uh, completely ignored by the rest of the refugees who are, are uh, trying to get out ahead of the Martian invasion of London. Uh, you know, basically that's the equivalent of U.S. Sup- uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. Uh, same same deal. And of course, in the novel, that was sort of representative of the breakdown of the rule of law. Uh, and the breakdown of, of societal convention under and government the, yeah. under the overwhelming force of an invading technologically superior group of people 
you know, the, the, the breakdown of civilization as it was in the face of overwhelming force. Uh, let's just have a chief justice dying of thirst while people ignore him. Uh, and because our play is set during the era when FDR was attempting to pack the courts, he actually did not pack the courts. He simply attempted to uh, add, like, what, three or four more chief. Yeah. He basically wanted to create a Supreme Court that was uh, overwhelmed with liberal justices so he could get through whatever he wanted in the New Deal. It, it was a big constitutional crisis yeah, it of, was. of the 30s. Yeah. And it, it would have been common knowledge from anybody listening to the radio or reading exactly. the newspaper. Yeah. So, uh, the, you know, it was when FDR was attempting to pack the courts. So we just had a whole pile of Supreme Court justices dying under a hedge uh, just just to get that moment in from uh, from H.G. Wells. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have like a pile of dead curates and a pile of dying Supreme Court justices, mm-hmm. you know, just because we could. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then, then we had uh, Eric. We had your yeah. character, the artilleryman. And um, uh, why don't why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. So in the in the original Wells, the artilleryman's this you know big idealist, pie-eyed kind of guy um, who thinks he's going to you know have this big underground resistance mm-hmm. movement, um, you know somehow come back and defeat these Martians, and he does so by getting drunk and drinking a digging a trench for the entire uh, novel, yeah. <laughs> like in a cellar, yeah. Yeah. like yeah, one, one crappy totally trench in one cellar, and he's. He's yeah. he's like full of you know just utopian ideals and because I uh, I don't think uh, Wells had much use for utopian uh, idealists either. Yeah, that, that yeah yeah these utopian ideals and, and well, can't except do for his racially pure utopia he was sure was coming. Uh, <laughs> wow, God. Yeah, that's another side. <laughs> so, but Ryan Ryan decided that you know I'm not going to actually do that. I'm going to just. Uh, as an artillery man, my job was to go and get eaten by the new alien overlords. Uh, so. Well, he's just a realist. You know, yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. there's no way we're beating these things. You're crazy to think we are. He's just, he's, yeah. you know, and our artilleryman is, is is just has given up, and he's really cheerful about being like the wagyu beef uh, of of artillerymen for the Martians. He just resigned, like you know, the, the less the most you can hope for is dying with dignity, basically. Really, and and that's. Kind of how I played it out. Yeah. yeah. No. What what, what I was, what I loved about your performance, Eric, is how you um, you're sort of did, cheerful. You're so cheerful. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's good casting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you know, just well, you know, we're all gonna die, so you know, there's no sense of getting upset about it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, so so that was our our call back to the H.G. Wells uh, artilleryman character, the the crazed idealist. Uh, because let's face it, you know, by the time this play takes place, World War One had happened. <laughs> not a lot of crazed idealists left. No. Well, not actually, exactly. I would argue there were, and they were all in Germany. That yeah. Was the problem. That that was definitely the problem, uh, except for the ones in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, Eric was one of a lot of different actors we had on this, and um, we we didn't have enough uh, revival leaguers to go around amongst our stable of cast and uh and uh announcers so we had to turn to some friends of the the podcast and 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 some of my uh personal friends and uh so like zach thompson i mean talk about him ryan uh yeah zach thompson was in the show and and who's zach thompson (laughs) uh yeah zach thompson from uh mystery science theater 3000 he plays one of the boneheads one of uh, felicia day's uh chief boneheads 
and he's been on the show a number of times. He may hold the record. Uh, it's either him or Trace. They're sort I of think, neck and neck. I think it's Trace at, at this point or, or, you know, that. Yeah. But uh, uh, Zach's been on the show a bunch. Uh, he's awesome. And he did just a fantastic job. Uh, he played uh, a number of characters. In the end credits, we only listed, you know, a couple of characters that people played simply because a lot of people had to take multiple roles. Uh, and the credits would have been forever if we listed every single voice they did. But Zach was uh, – he was an announcer, a radio announcer, who introduced uh, Clobber McGee and Irish Dave. Uh, he was – an artillery captain. He was Captain Lansing. And most importantly, he was Carl Phillips, uh, the... The penis-obsessed uh, yes. reporter who sees phallic symbols everywhere. Exactly, yes. And Carl Phillips was a direct lift from uh, from the Orson Welles version. Carl Phillips was uh, a reporter uh, in the Orson Welles version. I don't think he was penis-obsessed in the Orson Welles version. But, uh, but he could have been. But Zach was just He great. had the look. Zach had a real 1930s newscaster vibe about his performance. I thought that rapid-fire speech... Oh, uh, he was good. I mean, he just came in, rattled out his lines, and left. He's like, I got to go take care of my kids. You know, I mean, he he knocked it out in about 40 minutes. Yeah, it was and his, amazing. <laughs> his his narration, especially of the Thunder Child scene, yes. <laughs> starts out, you know, chilling and horrific, and then just rapidly gets silly and hilarious, yes. <laughs> you know. And, and I mean, for it to bounce back and forth like that was just great fun. He Yeah, Zach did a, a fantastic job, and I was just – I thought it was awesome that he he showed up and uh, did a couple of really pretty major parts, but he was he's, – he's a pro. He knocked him out real fast. I mean, he was perfectly like, hey, you want to go again? You want to go again? Like, you, we're not going to improve on that. Yeah. I think we did two takes just so we could say we had so we wouldn't feel like we wasted his time, but uh, – I think I ended up using the first take on just about everything he did. Yeah, it was, it was, he, he's super excellent. By yeah. the way, this was this will have been his fourth appearance on the Republic okay. podcast. So he and Trace might be. On. Yeah, they're neck and neck. They're neck and neck. Yeah. yeah. So Trace, will you? So um, the the other person who we brought in is someone I have wanted to work with since I was in high school, and that's one of uh, my high school chums, uh, Rebecca Heron, who played Hildy Blaine, uh, and uh, we both went to the high school for the performing and visual arts in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, class in 1991, and like. Like I mentioned, I'm a complete ham. I just get out there and do stuff. Rebecca is a pro. I yeah. mean, she's a professional actress. She's constantly in plays. And um, if you've never Googled Evercare, uh, go Google, Google Evercare. Go Google Evercare. <laughs> she she plays a caregiver to a zombie. And, and she's fantastic. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's what Greg sent me when he said, I was thinking we ought to do uh, Rebecca Heron. And you were sold in like two minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I didn't even have to watch. I, th- I think I watched the first like two minutes of Evercare, paused it, and said, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get her in here." <laughs> and and Rebecca, uh, like again, has a busy schedule, and uh, and she uh, she had to go into her bathroom late at night and record her sound on uh, on on her iPod, mm-hmm. or not her iPod, her iPad. Yeah, and and so um, you know, and and but her scene. Uh, of horror of watching the cylinders open up. You know, I mean, her character is on the front line of the beginning of Armageddon. Yeah. And it's like a scene where we first see the tripods, where the tripods just start shooting fish in a barrel and killing mm-hmm. off the crowd of uh, onlookers. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she had to, you know, deliver silly lines, but also be really yes. just, just, 
completely horrified, but enough of a professional to report to the bitter yeah, end. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who knows that she's about to die, but keeps reporting until she's cut off mid-sentence, literally, by by something killing her. Uh, she did a, a fantastic job. And, uh, and, and, and I think Ryan's stage directions to her is like, be like the guy narrating the explosion of the Hindenburg. Yeah, exactly. Zeppelin. Yeah. You know, yeah. oh, the humanity. The worst <laughs> thing in the world is happening while you're watching and you're not sure you're going to live through it, but you're such a pro that you keep talking. You know, it's like, you know, this I, this thing might land on me, but I, when it lands on me, I'll still be reporting. Uh, yeah. So and, and absolutely. And I, I think we're going to work with Rebecca in the future. Uh, and uh, we might bring in some more of my high school chums because uh, I – you know, I'm I'm the least talented person in that bunch, uh, and uh, which is they we can only go uphill from there. <laughs> you know, there there's some phenomenal actors uh, and, who are mostly in the Houston area. Our audience can't see that, but Ryan was nodding heavily with the. Oh, of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just I was biting my lips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. too easy, too easy. Yeah. Let You're it the least talented in a group of rocks. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not exactly. Gonna say it. <laughs> Not gonna say it. So. Um, so uh, we also like not wanted to not just honor H.G. Wells, but my first exposure to War of the Worlds was Orson Wells, and because his... Greg is hundred and fifty years old. Exactly. No. Okay. Uh, my family would go from Texas to Colorado, uh, like summer vacations and stuff, like just to get out of the heat because damn, yeah. it's hot down there. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, in our uh, 1980s uh, station wagon, you know, we had uh, a tape recorder. And mm-hmm. so my mom bought all of these old radio plays uh, for us to listen to, like The Shadow. And, yeah, I and, bought a bunch of radio plays from Cracker Barrel when I was a kid because you could buy them on cassette at Cracker Barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so you know, late at night, we'd, we'd listen to like The Hitchhiker and Dial in for Murder and all of these just mm-hmm. classic comedies and, and thrillers and, 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 and horrors horror programs and uh war of the worlds always stuck with me i don't know mm-hmm. about you but i mean the first time i heard it it was just you know it, it just made such an impression yeah so um we wanted to do lots of nods to orson wells you know and um have as many story elements from his radio play which Famously caused a panic mm-hmm. uh, in uh, especially the New York, New Jersey area. You read the script, you can see why. It, it's just, I mean, there's no necessarily plot or narration. It's a series of bulletins. It sounds like real radio. You know? Yeah, and, and our number one homage that we could do for this is we aired it on Halloween. Uh, our number two homage is that... Uh, this will make us famous. We will produce one great thing and then decline slowly. And 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 balloon up and sell Paul Mess on wine. Exactly. We'll end up, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Paul Mess on wine. <laughs> yeah, our, our future is ordained. But um, no, Orson Welles performed War of the Worlds. It's a Halloween episode uh, of his popular radio series on uh, Sunday, October 30th, 1938. And it aired on the Columbia Broadcasting System uh, radio network. Uh, and so uh, we decided, I mean, t- Ryan, tell people about our, our radio network. Well, originally, uh, the original script had Columbia Broadcasting System, but we decided that even though that was the radio network, uh, we probably shouldn't have a real radio network. Especially one that's like called Viacom these days. Yeah. Has, has deep legal 
coffer. So yeah. we, 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 we wanted to – also we wanted to create a world. Yes, exactly. That so. we can return to again and again in uh, later radio plays. Yeah, so ours is uh, the uh, Independence Broadcasting System. Or IBS. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryan's not one for for uh, for poop jokes. Well, I, got re- a lot I was humor. fine with people who happened to get it. I just refused to have them refer to it by the initials on the air. I, so, I, and, and future which they radio, wouldn't have done in the thirties no, anyway. They no, but that. just a, a subtle joke uh, to have IBS as, mm-hmm. as, as our network. Um, other, other things, and we already mentioned this. Like uh, we reset our invasion force. Uh, our Martians were landing in uh, all over America yeah. and not in England with a emphasis on New York and New Jersey. Yeah, which, you know, once again, that's what the Wells uh, radio play did. Uh, and then, uh, of course, a big homage to Wells is that we do it, it. This is basically what he did. We set it as a radio broadcast that unfolds in real time. You know, uh, it, it's a mockumentary. Uh, we also made it a worldwide invasion uh, instead of uh, simply a local thing, uh, sort of like uh, George Powell's movie in the 50s. In 1953, George Powell made probably the most famous movie version of War of the Worlds. And, uh, you know, 50s invasion movies in general, although all of those, I would argue, uh, are direct descendants of War of the Worlds. Uh, and then uh, uh, Orson Welles, his War of the Worlds was part of his uh, sort of anthology radio drama series, uh, The Mercury Theater on the Air. There were all sorts of uh, radio and uh, in the early days of television, of course, a lot of them moved over to television anthologies. Uh, Beyond the Door, I think, was a famous horror anthology of the radio series. The Shadow was well, – the Shadow was a continuing. But, you know, much like The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits in the 60s uh, – you know, anthology series where you'd have a, a repertoire, uh, sort of a repertory theater of actors playing different parts in different stories uh, every, every every night. Uh, and we're sort of hoping to, to do that in the future with other specials, you know, sort of bring back a, sort of a connected world with different characters. But I, I think Ryan and I both were really struck by the name Mercury Theater. I know that it just sounded cool when I was a kid, the Mercury Theater. Yeah. So when, when we were like, you know, taking Ryan's script and dropping in our Easter eggs, we decided when the Martian uh, black smoke is rolling across Manhattan, uh, when it gets near Broadway, uh, it, we, we just put in – uh, Knox Man, and we put a line in his mouth where it passes, the black smoke rolls over the Mercury Theater. Exactly. And of course, there I don't think there ever was a space called the Mercury Theater. There was no. a performance space. But on our world, there is. But in our world, there is. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, we do, uh, you know, just like the original Orson Welles version, we do embedded military radio transmissions patched through to the, uh, the New Jersey militia, the Army, the Air Force battling the Martians. Uh it's one of the few direct lifts of a line I did, I think, is so we'd run special wires out to the field or something, which was a direct lift from uh, from Orson Welles' play because I'm like, well, I can't I can't put it in any more of a 30s way than that. Well, uh, to so me, they, They've run special lines out to the military transmissions. The, to me, the line that always got to, to me uh, in the Orson Welles' version is when that black smoke is rolling across this panicked crowd mm-hmm. – uh, and everybody is dying all throughout New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was – they're dropping like rats. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you had Knox Manning repeat that line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it always just <laughs> – you know, it, yeah. it, it, it just gives me And chills. I also had Knox Manning repeat the, the uh, uh, 
what Wells Orson Wells did, where he was he was narrating how close the smoke was getting to his position. Uh, as he he was cornered, the smoke hit him and he dies. You know, and that was just that was chilling because you know you'd have. Uh, in the Orson Welles plays, you know, it's 100 yards away, it's 50 yards away, it's 20 yards away. Thud. You Thud. Know. And, and we tried to... We, yeah, we took that, shamelessly stole that. Shamelessly stole that and had our air raid sirens just winding down over a dead city. Yeah, yeah. And um, then let the Martians give out a klaxon call of triumph that they've mm-hmm. destroyed uh, New York. And um, but what what about other versions, Ryan? I mean, what what other versions did we honor? Well, we had the uh, George Powell nineteen fifty three version, which is like I said, probably the most famous. The ones that movie they don't version. they don't walk in that one. No, they, they fly. fly. They yeah, fly. But, yeah, which I think loses something. Yeah, but, I absolutely uh, do too. Uh, but uh, George Powell's nineteen fifty three version, uh, the biggest homage we could get, uh, we could have was the lead, uh, the hero in that version. Was a guy named Doctor Clayton Forrester. Absolutely, got to yeah. go with Doctor Clayton Forrester. Yeah. So we we threw Doctor Clayton Forrester in there. The George Powell version uh, was played by an actor named Gene Barry. Uh, and of course, when Mystery Science Theater came along, they flagrantly stole the name Doctor Clayton Forrester for the character tra- played by uh, Trace Beaulieu. And uh, now we've got Doctor Clayton Forrester played by James Rowling uh, from the Revival League. Uh, so we actually sort of worked in a double homage. You know, it's a, an homage to an homage to the original. Uh, and we call it forced reception. Yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, how could we not? I mean, we're, we're, we're a mystery science theater podcast and we're doing War of the Worlds. Yeah. So we, we absolutely had to have Clayton Forrester in there. Exactly. And, uh, and I mean, I just point out that uh, Dr. Clayton Forrester – uh, is in there because he was the War of the Worlds, Dr. Clayton Forrester. Uh, not because we, I felt the need in writing the script to put an MST reference in, but I'm like, well, that, that's perfect. That's yeah, perfect. I mean, it, it did it did a lot of heavy lifting, so why the hell <laughs> yeah, not? Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, now this, this next one that we did was kind of something I had heard as a kid that I don't think you had much exposure to, and that was Jeff Wayne. Now, Jeff Wayne uh, in our version is a uh, – He's a fighter pilot. Yeah, he's a fighter pilot in our radio play. But it he, was uh, Commander Vogt or Voigt in the original Orson Welles. I yeah, believe. but I was like, oh, we got to make him Jeff Wayne because yeah. we got to work Jeff Wayne in there. So Jeff Wayne was uh, a composer of the 1978 uh, disco concept album, uh, Jeff Wayne's uh, musical version of War of the Worlds. And uh, this is sort of a strange artifact floating around uh, out there. Google it, folks. Go out and go to Google Images and and, and Google uh, Jeff Wayne and War of the Worlds, W-A-Y-N-E. You will see some of the most amazing cover art of any album out there. And it's uh, an album cover of the Thunder Child ramming a tripod. And it's beautifully done. And mm-hmm, I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, if I had like original artwork of that i'd frame it and hang it on my wall because it's it's just that good and the wayne album eh, i don't know how well it's aged but um <laughs> it's disco so i'm guessing not well not not too well but it's you know it's it's a artifact of its time and certainly an important piece in war of the world's uh lore mm, yeah and uh, you know we did some uh, other nods to other versions of War of the Worlds in, in some of the commercials uh, that we ran, and the commercials were uh, were written by the people who performed them. They were written uh, by Ron McAdams, James Rowling, and Erica Rodriguez, and uh, I think just the commercials are some of the funniest things. Absolutely, in the entire uh, in the entire 
show, uh, and uh, they worked in interesting little references to uh, to H.G. Wells or to a, a movie version or something into some of, into some of the commercials. Really subtle little references, and some a little more obvious. Uh, the most obvious is probably the law firm of Pal Spielberg, Wells and Wells. The the four big productions of, uh-huh. of War of the Worlds. Exactly. Yeah. And Wells and Wells, one of the Wells is spelled with a E and one without <laughs> um, because of the difference between H.G. and Orson Welles' names. Uh, one of the salesman characters is named Pendragon, which is – and this is a deep cut. It's after a, ni- a 2005 TV movie by Pendragon Pictures. Yeah, a British movie. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, of course, uh, there are a couple of different uh, salespeople or company named – companies named Wells, I believe. Yeah, um, and I, I think we worked in – I can't remember, but I think uh, we used Eddington in there somewhere for the Eddington uh, Disraeli uh, steampunk novel imagining what – graphic novel imagining what came after War of the Worlds for I think we might Vic, have Victorian uh, England. It's called Scarlet Traces. And uh, they did a prequel where they went back and illustrated after Scarlet Traces uh, the original War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. And it, it's probably one of the best graphic novel versions of War of the Worlds out there today. So, I mean, you know, we, 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 tried, to, we tried to know our stuff and make mm-hmm. sure that for any hardcore nerds like us that uh, there was some yeah. little nods for you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking of commercials, uh, uh, Pretty much everybody who took a part in this uh, also did commercials uh, of the Revival League gang. Uh, you know, we had, uh, like I said, it was Ron, it was James, it was uh, Erica, and they they actually gave us so many commercials that we couldn't use them all uh, and keep this uh, to an hour. So there are a couple of commercials that will most likely be going in our next uh, our next special, uh, and they were really really good. And I think uh, we ought to. Go ahead and uh, take a break and hear our second audio postcard so we can hear a little about those commercials. Roll the tape. Our next interview is with Revival League podcast regular, Kate Page. I am great. How are you, Ron? Oh, my gosh. I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing more wonderful now that I'm speaking with you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, niceties out of the way. Um, what a guy. Yeah, I do what I can. Um, <laughs> the uh, kind of what I want to talk to you about today is just uh, your role on the World of Worlds podcast, and or I'm sorry, radio play. I keep saying podcast. I want to say radio play. Well, uh, I, I do the podcast most often, so that that's okay. We'll forgive you for that. Yeah, one. it's sorry. It's I'm getting all your roles mixed up. You do so much for the Revival League. Oh, that's my my plan is working. <laughs> it's well, it's 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 good exposure. So when your uh, your voice acting career takes off, this oh is gosh. all I can I can say. I was here at the beginning. This is true. Yep, I will. I will remember my friends. I know. I really hope you do, because I and and first thing you need to buy is a super comfortable couch for me to sleep on. Awesome. Consider so, it done. Awesome. So, when uh, when were you first approached about being uh, part of the project? Um, probably. I think it was shortly. Yeah, shortly after Ryan completed writing the first draft, and he passed it to Greg, and they were kind of starting to brainstorm who they could bring in or who would be interested. Um, and I think Ryan just wrote it without like keeping roles in mind like he wrote it and then we found people to fill in later rather than he wrote it and had people in mind as he was writing i mean maybe he did but i don't i i didn't get that impression so um because i know a lot of the roles could have could have been played by a number of people just depending on schedules and availability so certainly but it's um 
I, I remember your role. You do a lot of announcing. You're part of the um, you're, you're part of the radio team at the uh, funnily named uh, sort of radio station. It's um, it's uh, oh gosh, I spaced out on it. It's IBS. <laughs> it, yeah, independent yeah. broadcasting company. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, how appropriate. I remember talking with Greg about that because he's like, it's like yeah, we're we're working on a funny name, and I was like, oh, is it going to be like? Well, it did change. It changed names a couple times yeah i think it was to try to get something that was not like a real radio station but then something that was funny as well but sounds legit enough yeah Yeah. (laughs) legitimately like something you'd see a uh, pharmacist about certainly right Right, right. But do you have any kind of memories from the production? I I know that we had a lot of fun sitting around doing the table read. Yeah, I mean, I, I... You know, I, to be honest, I never did a whole lot of plays or anything. Probably not since, like, you know, elementary school, class play. So this was kind of fun. Um, I was a little worried that Ryan and Greg <laughs> were, uh, were a little overly ambitious with what I with what uh, they wanted me to do. But it worked out, and it was a lot of fun. Um, Production-wise, it was really interesting just literally like reading the lines with Greg and Ryan because none of the sound effects had been added in or anything like that, any of the, the timing or the music. Um, so it really was like a, like a dry read, you know, so it's, you know, Ryan was telling us, oh, well, this part, you know, I'm going to edit in th- these sorts of sounds, so try and react to that. And yeah, that that's kind of that's kind of challenging to, to try and like make it authentic sounding without actually hearing the the noises he's going to use or anything like that you know this sounds exactly like an interview would go with hayden christensen after he had just gone through those star wars prequels oh man where it's like (laughs) i don't know that's a good thing or a bad thing yeah it's well but it's like hey there's a giant monster (laughs) over here and it's going to eat you and it's like it's really it's a stage hand with like a here's a green screen but pretend you're really scared but like really really scared. so you had to draw on a lot of your kind of own emotions and 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 bring that into your performance as well use your imagination and fill in the blanks yeah. so, i think some of us are better at that than others <laughs> i don't know i just kind of it's one of those things where it's it, after you've seen enough of this stuff you kind of maybe you have like a shorthand in your mind about like what something should maybe sound like i know there's a lot of times That's where true. you had to emote you were just like extremely angry with the people you were talking to or yeah, very very frustrated yeah. so and i think that comes across well that's good. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, my dad's a big fan of like old time, oldie timey radio, and um, I remember like he'd he'd be up, I'd be reading or whatever, and he'd listen to some. He he loved all the old mystery shows and like just like the foley work of like the footsteps and the doors shutting and that sort of thing, or like the floor creaking. I always thought that was really cool. So um, yeah, I kind of pictured this kind of in that sort of sense, um, like sound effects being you know like radio theater is what it is. So. Yeah, that was kind of neat. Never thought I'd do such a thing. <laughs> you certainly have to create your own universe that you want uh, people to be able to sort of real realistically enter into and be part of. And I mean, just the I, I was super impressed, too, because in my mind, I was like, OK, I'm doing these things and it's all right. And we'll, we'll see how it all comes right. together. But it's like all the special effects uh, or FX sound work that was layered in the music, everything. I mean, it's just I was really, really impressed with like the final product because in my mind I was thinking about oh what, what how I would do it, mm-hmm. and this is like uh, streets ahead okay. of awesome. of, See, of what so I was expecting. We're recording this before before the episode is released, and I've been 
I've had the opportunity to listen to it yet, but I haven't yet because I want to be surprised. So I'm going to be hopefully listening to it for the first time with everybody else. So I've heard nothing but good things. And I, I don't know. I'm really excited. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's it's probably actually take back everything I said. It's just like it's a droning like sound <laughs> like an air conditioner that can't exactly get started uh-huh. like it's got a bad compressor it's just oh, that so it's for like an hour every week on the podcast well like oh <laughs> huge slam on greg out of yeah, nowhere well we love greg somebody's got to kate thanks so much for talking with me today i really appreciate it you're welcome ron thanks for saying hey all right thank you person to be named later Yes, not a generic insert there, Ryan. <laughs> so, so another thing we did uh, is is we tried to stay true to the period and have historical jokes uh, and revival again jokes, um, and uh, that that just because you know we're we're both armchair historians and mm-hmm. and, and uh, I particularly enjoy like. 30s and 40s productions. Yeah. You know, probably from all those radio plays I listened to as a kid. Mm. And so uh, we, you know, besides the court packing references and uh, Ryan writing some really funny uh, jokes about asbestos, yeah, uh, <laughs> just you had good throwaway lines. Yeah. Yeah. And, I was happy. I was pretty proud of some of my throwaway lines, uh, uh, especially, you know, the, those that I knew were a joke for one person. It's like one person will get this. And that's it. <laughs> well, I mean, you had the lucky lending. Lucky yeah, lending I think joke. everybody will get that. I hope everybody will get that. I've played this for a lot of people, and and they, that gets a laugh. Okay, so, so. everybody gets that. Thank God uh, that everybody is aware of the Lindbergh kidnapping, the trial of the century, as it was called uh, before OJ came along. Um, yeah, so of course we we throw in a joke about the Lindbergh kidnapping because what's funnier than the uh, the, the grief of parents? Um, we also threw in a joke about the, uh, about Alf Landon, uh, Alf Landon's failed presidential bid. Eric, tell us a little about Alf Landon. I would love to, if I knew anything <laughs> about Alf Landon. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, Alf, I think Alf Landon liked to eat cats. And, yeah. and uh, uh, Alf Landon ran against Roosevelt in 36 and lost by a lot. It was the most lopsided, uh, electoral college victory and one of the most lopsided popular victories in presidential history, uh, Alf Landon lost by a lot, <laughs> by like 538 electoral votes he, or something like that. He, he was the Walter Mondale of the, the yeah, 1930s. He, yes, and he lost worse than Mondale. He lost worse than Mondale, who took one state you know, uh, against against Roosevelt because Roosevelt was incredibly popular. Uh, so, yeah, that Alf Landon joke is what I'm talking about when I say it's a joke for one person. It's a deep cut. Yeah, it's a deep cut, but... Uh, I loved it. Um, and, uh, of course, we, we had to address uh, the casual racism in old radio shows. Oh, God, there is, yeah. There's a lot of them, a lot of it. It's, uh, uh, of course, you know, I mean, the most famous is Amos and Andy, which uh, uh, Amos and Andy became a television show that actually did star African-American actors. But when it was a radio show, it was a couple of white guys doing what they thought sounded like African-American characters. It was basically a minstrel show on the radio. Uh, audio blackface. I yeah, mean, it was audio blackface. It was pretty awful. Uh, and, and, then, and then you, I mean, then you had stuff that, that bled all the way into the 1960s, like, you know, Mexi- even, Mexican voices sounded like the Frito Bandito, yeah. or Speedy Gonzalez. So, yeah, and that's not even necessarily an only comedy. Sometimes you'll, you'll watch a drama. Uh, Eli Wallach does a pretty 
awful stage Mexican in The Magnificent Seven. And Eli Wallach was a great actor. Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, this, this time it, it's like uh, racial and ethnic, uh, uh, I think you call it oblivious ethnic condescension. Oh, oblivious ethnic condescension, yes. Uh, in, in, in the radio play, but uh, it, it's like it's endemic to the time. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to capture some of that showbiz intolerance uh, with uh, Clobber McGee and Irish Dave. Yeah. And I, I mean, man, we hate on the Irish in our radio play. Yeah, exactly. Now, Clobber McGee uh, is a character whose voice is one of those things where hopefully audiences think, I think I should be offended by this voice, but I'm not sure why. Whereas Irish Dave is just the broadest and most offensive Irish accent Irish brogue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he makes uh, uh, Lucky from the Lucky Charms commercials look subtle. Yeah. And. <laughs> And, and I mean, we went with this. I mean, because a we're we're both of Irish uh, American heritage, so we felt mm-hmm. like it was comfortably in our wheelhouse to point out some of the stuff that. that well, most we, of my Irish genes, thankfully, have been bred out. Oh man, <laughs> he, he went there. He went there. But um, I, I mean, we we just needlessly slam on the Irish. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. And uh, well, that's sort of our stand-in for the the, the fact that old radio really was, and I mean, um, all forms of entertainment, the the casual racism that you will see in an otherwise classic movie is just, you know, it's something that just sort of stops you in your tracks today. I mean, like you watch watch an uncut version of Dumbo with the crows, you know, it's painful. Breakfast at Tiffany's with Mickey Rooney doing that horrendous... Asian stereotype with buck teeth and big glasses and just, uh, you know, good God. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, Gone with the Wind is a movie that blazed new trails because it was the first African-American uh, performer to win uh, an Academy Award for acting was Hattie McDaniel. Uh, but all of the characters, uh, the African-American characters in that were uh, obviously a white person's idea of an, uh, a racist white person's idea of an African-American character. They were just such stock uh, stereotypes. They were awful. Uh well, thankfully, by the by the '60s, uh, you know, uh, all the network the studios had outgrown that, you know, and we're making good pieces of tolerance like uh, uh, like Song of the South, you know. <laughs> well, Song of the South was made in the '40s. Was it? Yes. I thought it was a, a '60s version. No, no, 1940s. Really, that yes, old? Yes, yes, uh, yes. James Baskett, the star of Song of the South, was not allowed to attend the premiere because it uh, premiered in Atlanta, which, of course. Had segregated theaters, so the star of the movie was not allowed to. So that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but hey, we have Splash Mountain today, folks. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty terrible. <laughs> so I mean, you, you also kind of took a poke uh, at Henry Ford and his anti-Semitism. Yes, yeah. Uh, Henry Ford was famously virulently anti-Semitic. Uh, I mean, he bought a magazine uh, and ran it for years and years in spite of the fact that it was always a money loser, uh, a horrible money loser because his, his, the writing was terrible. He didn't write, but you know, he basically hired writers to be his mouthpieces and the magazine was filled with anti-Semitic content. You know, he was, sounds like the Breitbart of its day. He lost money in order to spread anti-Semitic propaganda. Henry Ford was famously, eventually he was forced to apologize, uh, just because the, he was, you know, I mean, it was running his business into the ground, basically. People were not doing business with him. But he was, he lost money for years to propagate his anti-Semitic ideas. So we had to get a poke in at, at Henry Ford because he was, 
he was a man who was good at one thing, which was making cars, and everything else he was uh, astoundingly bad at, and and just not a, not a great guy, a horrible human being. Um, so there were lots of historic names uh, of some of your characters that you chose, uh, the character names you chose, Ryan, and uh, some were from actual historic people, and some you were paying homage to different versions of uh, War of the World. So tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, let's start with uh, the, the two main characters who, who are the uh, the radio news broadcasters in the studio in New York. That's Wash Perry and Gilda Collins. And that, those were uh, – you were Wash Perry and Kate Page played Gilda Collins. Uh, those characters are named for uh, characters in the 1953 War of the Worlds movie. Uh, Gilda – it was originally Matthew Collins. But Wash Perry and Matthew Collins were characters in the movie. And I just thought that they had good broadcaster names, so I plucked them out of the movie and used them. Uh, and originally it was going to be uh, you and me doing – but then I decided that I would uh, – thought that Kate would be a better uh, newscaster than I would. So uh, so I changed Besides, Matthew your, to Gilda. Besides, your Professor Pearson killed it. So. <laughs> and, uh, uh, now, Professor Pearson and Carl Phillips, those names were direct lifts from the Wells radio play. Uh, Professor Pearson is actually – he is actually the guy who survives and – sees the tripods topple, just like in our version. Uh, and Carl Phillips is uh, like the first field reporter in the, the Wells edition. He gets killed early on. We had him survive. Um, and to spread his his interesting brand of uh, phallic obsession uh, far and wide, hopefully in later radio plays. Um, then we had... Uh, you know, names like like Smedley Arbogast. I think we have a general in there named Smedley Arbogast. I just stole that from uh, uh, Arbogast. Quite frankly, I stole from the name of the psycho, the the private detective in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho was Detective Arbogast, and Smedley was General Smedley Butler, who was a famous military man in the 30s and 40s. Uh, Floyd Gibbons, Ron McAdams played Floyd Gibbons, who is one of my favorite characters. He's one of the favorite characters that I wrote, and when Ron performed him he became one of my favorite performances i love floyd gibbons a lot of people do i mean we've got a lot uh, of positive feedback about ron playing floyd uh floyd gibbons our floyd gibbons is a sort of a worthless guy yeah the real floyd gibbons was a hell of a guy he was a war correspondent for the chicago tribune in world war one he was also one of uh, radio's first news correspondents uh he sort of became famous for his rat-a-tat-tat rapid-fire speaking style so he he is sort of the the platonic ideal of the radio broadcaster. When you think of an old 1930s radio broadcaster with that rapid-fire talk, it's Floyd Gibbons. Uh, he was uh, uh, a hell of a guy. And uh, uh, sorry to the ghost of Floyd Gibbons that we made uh, major namesake a layabout who only wanted to, <laughs> to binge listen <laughs> Fibber McGee and Molly episodes. Hildy Blaine. Uh, Hildy Blaine was uh, Rebecca Heron played her. She was uh, one of our, the field reporters. And Hildy Blaine, I stole that name from Hildy Johnson from His Girl Friday, uh, which is a great Rosalind Russell, uh, Cary Grant movie. I'm still not entirely sure why the title is His Girl Friday because A Girl Friday was basically a, a secretary who ran errands. That was what A Girl Friday was in uh, – uh, the, the parlance of the time, and Hildy Johnson was a reporter. She was not a, a, a secretary. She was a tough-as-nails reporter. And then I, uh, the, the last name is from Torchy Blaine, who is the sort of the origin of the tough-as-nails female reporter 
trope from the 30s and 40s. Uh, she was in a series of movies in the late 30s, that you know, Torchy Blaine movies, action mystery movies. Uh, she's also the inspiration for Lois Lane. Uh, that's where Jerry oh, I didn't Zingland, know that. Yeah, they, they came up with uh, the, the character, the personality of Lois Lane was inspired by Hildy Blaine. And then the, the name was from actress Lola Lane. But uh, yeah, so I, I always wanted, I always thought Torchy Blaine was a great name. But it sounded a little bit too quite frankly, a little bit too much like a stripper name for uh, for our purposes here. So I changed it to Hildy so I could uh, sort of honor Rosalind Russell, who I think is one of the, the – Hildy Johnson's one of the great performances in cinema. Uh, and then, as I said, Carl Phillips and Professor Pearson just direct lifts from uh, uh, the Wells uh, play, the radio play. And then Knox Manning, who uh, Ron plays uh, – he's Ron's last character, the one who dies in the Battle of New York – Knox Manning was a real guy. He was a radio and television news correspondent. And I just loved the name Knox Manning, so I just stole it. <laughs> Frankly, stole it. And, uh, I mean, it. it um, and by the way, just, just a, a, a special shout-out to Ron, because the man has a thousand voices. He, yeah, you do not know how often Ron is in this, this show. Because, uh, I, I mean, he grew up idealizing Mel Blanc. The uh, you know voice of a lot of the Looney Tunes characters mm. and, and and other classic cartoon characters, and uh, Ron has always uh, secretly wanted to be a voice actor. Ron could do it easily, and and there were times where uh, you were editing this, Ryan. And we'll get into that in a minute. But there were times when you were editing multiple commercials uh, where Ron was voicing them and you didn't realize that some of the voices were wrong. No, I intentionally tried to put different people back to back when I put commercials together. And it turned out that I ran a couple of Ron commercials back to back without realizing. There were, I think Ron. there was a block of three and they were all Ron. And no, was, there, there was two Rons and an Erica. And I thought it was a Ron, a James and an Erica, you know, because then, his then, voices I told were so you, different. And then when I told you, you were just gobsmacked. Yeah. You're like, what? That's Ron too? Yeah. So I have no doubt that Ron, uh, if we continue doing these radio plays, will end up having conversations with himself and nobody will know it. Yeah. <laughs> that he will play. Just like in real life. He will play two characters <laughs> in the same scene and nobody will know it. I, I have no doubt. Uh, Ron is in this a lot. Well, um, other other things that we did was we wanted to just throw out a couple of shout outs uh, to the Revival League listeners. So, um, you know, the show is uh, recorded in the Roof Lizard Lounge uh, and sponsored by the Dino Hotel. So uh, we wanted, you know, I always loved in radio plays, and this was even in the uh, Orson Welles version, when they say we're broadcasting from the rainbow room yeah. mm-hmm. of the such and such. And and that actually directly inspired my, we're broadcasting from the Roof Lizard Lounge, mm-hmm. high atop the Dino Hotel, you know, all two stories of it. Yeah. But uh, I, I always love that old flavor of there somewhere in midtown Manhattan, yeah. you know. And, it's and late the, at night, there's a dance band playing. Yeah, it's yeah. a ballroom, people are dancing and mm. and and doing the Lindy Hop or whatever. Except for the make-believe ballroom sort of fucked up the convention because they went ahead and told you in the title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just some guy sitting in a closet spinning records. It's a make-believe ballroom. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you, Rainbow Room. Yeah, it's- but but uh, we, we, uh, we had uh, Zach Thompson right at the top of uh, the radio play. Uh, the Roof Lizard Lounge just makes it in. And the Dyna Hotel becomes 
the fancy French Les Hotels du Dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> just 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 cause, you know, it it, it made me giggly. Uh, the uh, resistance movement that discovers the uh, Deus Ex Machina for uh, killing off the Martians uh, is named the Revival League. Mm-hmm. So that was a very obvious little shout out. And then uh, the uh, way that Ryan decided to kill off the Martians is Ryan. <laughs> Pumpkin pie flavored soda. Yeah, and, and this this is a massive nod to our uh, Minnesota review. Yeah, right? it's the it may be the only actual revival league nod that I put in myself. Uh, most of those were your idea, and that one was uh, that one was my idea from the beginning. That was central to the plot. That was how the Martians were going to die uh, after after Thanksgiving of twenty sixteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was and, how the Martians were going to die. <laughs> and 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 just to walk us. Uh, Back, back to, to people who haven't been listening or don't remember the podcast from 2016, uh, we did uh, a Thanksgiving weekend tasting uh, called the Mega Soda Review. Where we I was did, depressed for six months. Yeah, and <laughs> we tried – because it was a Thanksgiving-flavored set of sodas, which is as awful as it sounds. Yes. We tried two sodas, and uh, Eric, tell us about those. Oh, well, they were awful. Um, there was Pete's Pumpkin Patch Soda. <sighs> it's – May have only been uh, outdone or underdone or made, you know, out. I guess the only thing that was worse, I will put it that way, mm-hmm. might have been the Lester's Fixins pumpkin pie soda mm-hmm. from Rocket Fizz. From Rocket Fizz. Uh, yeah, anything that's actually any, any of the Lester or Melba's Fixins. They're um, all awful. But yeah, you, you immediately know you're going to get just this like chemical overdose. That was a special kind of awful. I mean, uh, that was yeah. that, it, it sort of became legendary among the people who were there that day. And there were quite a few of them because we, we had a, a full studio for that podcast because it was during the Turkey Day uh, get-together. So we had – uh, as many people in here as would fit, and, and yeah, and and uh, and they uh, several of them sampled it, and it, it became legendary among the. And I had extra bottles left over because no one was drinking that stuff except Robbie. Oh no, Ernie, because yeah. Robbie's just a weirdo. Yeah. But um, we had Easter roll around, and I had extra bottles of the uh, the Pete's pumpkin patch, and Karen Kasky came and uh, and and had a, a, a few uh, alcoholic libations, and then on a dare, drank a couple of the Pete's pumpkin patch and chugged them. And, and got, she's now suing the hotel. Yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> much. No, she got sick as a dog, and I think she got to taste the pumpkin pie twice. Uh-huh. So it's uh, pumpkin pie soda is now very much in the lore of, of horrible eldritch things uh, that you can do to a human being. And yeah, just uh, yeah, don't even drink it on a dare, folks. You know, uh, uh, and I mean, you know, I, I, you know, you know, Karen, Karen Kasky is a veteran. This didn't scare her. It's like you know, I was in the army. Pumpkin pie soda, it's nothing. No, no. You're right to be afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you know, no matter how tough you are, this will this will be your undoing. So, yeah, it was A, my uh, nod to the Revival League, and B, my nod to the fact that uh, although it was a brilliant idea when Wells wrote it, I actually have questions about whether Earth bacteria would kill Martians because uh, we're talking about DNA that has not evolved to be susceptible to... You know, Earth organisms that attack other organisms uh, evolve specifically to attack those organisms. Viruses, for instance, only fit into a cell one way. If they encounter a cell that does not have that receptor, that virus cannot affect that organism. Uh, Sharks cannot taste spicy food because spice 
you know, heat capsaicin evolved to deter land-based predators. I wonder what would happen if you gave a shark a pumpkin pie soda. Uh, you would get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> it's a stupid question, Greg. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so – like, you know, I, I even put a line in there, you know, what earth bacteria could possibly have evolved to affect Martian systems? Of well, course it was pumpkin pie soda. And and by the way, uh, a couple of weeks back, we uh, tried uh, Knudsen's uh, pumpkin pie soda. That was actually uh, – had nothing to do with the making of the War of the Worlds podcast because that, that, that podcast was completely in the can, ready to go, just waiting uh, to drop on Halloween day. Yeah, the War of the Worlds podcast has actually been uh, – you know, it was done well before it dropped, at least in the in the. Uh, I think a cup. Uh, aside from throwing in a station identification at the beginning and end, it was ready to go a month before. Halloween. Well, and and the so the third pumpkin pie soda we tried actually timeline wise came after the fact, and we just tried it mainly because I hate Ryan <laughs> and enjoy torturing him. Yes, you do, son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so. Sound. I mean, what sound and music were such an important part. Of, yes, it's a radio play. Of exactly. Course they were an important part. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you let me finish my sentence, around, you know what? There's going to be a fourth pumpkin pie soda. <laughs> but I mean, you you handled. I mean, we had foley art. We built a sound library. Uh, we built a music library, and there were certain folders uh, that we had to do. But I mean, you handled the foley art mostly. So I mean, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it was library sound, of course. Uh, we did uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, hacking and coughing and screaming from the corners of the room to get some of the Rustling paper, shutting doors. Yeah, to get some of the background uh, uh, sounds. And uh, it, it's interesting how many sounds you actually have to, when you're doing the engineering of this thing, how many, how many layers of sound it needs to sound right. You know, there are sounds that are in there. That you don't really hear, but you would hear if they weren't there, if you understand my meaning. You know, just a very subtle, you know, this thing, you know, this scene needs a car engine way far in the background that nobody listening will notice. But if it's not there, it doesn't sound like it's really outside, that kind of thing. Uh, we, we really worked hard on putting a sound library together. I think... I think we spent an entire day basically just getting library sounds. Well, that that was together, but uh, I spent probably almost a week yeah. doing sound and music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, in, in all of this, uh, Ryan and I, I mean, most important part there is the ampersand because uh, there were things where he took the lead and things where I took the yeah. lead. But other outside of editing, uh, I don't think anything was purely just one of us. No, no. But you were – I'd say the sound library, the, the building of a sound library was mostly you. Yeah, and, and the part that fascinated me the most was I, I went to a sound library site and uh, purchased a whole bunch of, uh, of royalty-free sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting the Martian noises was really, really crucial and yeah, important. because you've got to make it sound real, but you also want a certain feel. There are a lot of... There are a lot of very mechanical – there's not a lot of electronic. It's a lot of very mechanical sounds. It's gears moving. Yeah. And it's metal kind of clanging. A, it's very steampunk. It's very steampunk, but it's still chilling and otherworldly. Yeah. We wanted the tripods to have a certain sound. And, and uh, our, uh, our heat rays, when they fire, they sound white hot. Yeah. But we wanted – we had sort of a terrorizer sound, uh, you know, like a riser uh, that uh, was – we wanted to have our weapons charge. Mm-hmm. So our tripods, once they have to f- 
charge their weapons, and then they can fire multiple times. Yeah. And then uh, we had uh, – because uh, H.D. Wells talks a lot about his tripod sort of hooting mm-hmm. back and forth and having klaxon noises mm-hmm. and communicating via sound, uh, which was definitely carried over in the 2005 Spielberg novel to great chilling effect. We, we had our own special creepy klaxon mm-hmm. noise. Uh, and, and then the, there was a really a lot of care – Put into uh, the cylinders. Yeah, and that was a bunch of layers. So. Yeah, I mean, there was a space soundtrack that was actually sort of ambient space music uh, that just makes it sound like there's energy emanating yeah. from the cylinders. Uh, and the, you throw in a, a a lower tone so it doesn't sound like music; it just sounds like noise. Yeah, yeah. and and then there was like uh, we we use samples that were supposed to be like stone temple doors opening, mm-hmm. like stone trap doors, uh, sliding manhole covers for yeah. some of the sounds of the cylinder mm-hmm. unscrewing yep. and, and the tripods getting ready to come out. And then uh, we we uh, there I'm pretty was, sure the heat ray was a bandsaw, wasn't it? The heat ray was a bandsaw because I mean it sounds like hot friction. Yeah, and, and it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and if there's one thing we like to get a lot of in our podcast, it's hot friction. <laughs> um, the the one noise you picked out out of all the tripod sounds was the black smoke. Sort of that. I, I What sound did you use for that? I just used a, uh, an open gas tap. Like it's, an open yeah. natural gas tap. Yeah. Well, yeah it, so it was precisely what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Really. It's, it's, yeah. One of the few sounds that was accomplished in the way that it really would be in real life is – a gaseous. Um, and uh, then, you know, I mean, for the, the, the destruction caused by the Martians, uh, you know, of course we use explosions and stuff, but a lot of that's recordings of volcanoes. Well, we actually had a folder on Dropbox named Mayhem and Destruction. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, like recordings of volcanoes, recording of a collapsing building, uh, air raid sirens, of course, honking car horns, but that was a challenge because this is set in 1939. So we didn't use, for the most part, modern honking car horns. We went and found uh, older car horns, you know, because we didn't want it to sound like traffic in Midtown Manhattan today. We wanted to sound like traffic in Midtown Manhattan 80 years ago, 90 years ago. So uh, that was that was an interesting, interesting challenge to get the right sound for uh, when you hear a vehicle pass in this, it's, it's, you can hear a sewing machine engine, you know. Yeah. We it, want... We want it to sound like it was uh, uh, a vintage car passing, a car that would have been available in 1939. Well, and, and one of the most complex things, what was that Jeff Wayne uh, Army yeah. Air Force scene? The aircraft thing was complex. Yeah, together. it was very complex because, I mean— It doesn't sound like it because it's really only a few sounds put together. But and just, it's a short scene. Yeah, but, but it was rough. <laughs> yeah, it was really complex, and we needed a it needed to sound like a pre-World World War II— uh, military aircraft. Mm-hmm. So I, I went digging around and finally settled on noises from a North American P-51 Mustang, yeah. uh, which went into production in 1940, just a few months after mm-hmm. our, our 1939 radio play was set. And um, But it's one of those things where you, from the drone of the engine, you can tell it's a prop plane. It's yeah. not a jet. You know, it's, it's what needed to be. Yeah, we we needed a plane nose diving. We needed an engine dying. We needed we needed uh, propeller noises mm-hmm. uh, and and engine noises. So I mean that I mean sounding like you're broadcasting from the cockpit of 1939 uh, warplane was like like how non, the hell are we doing this? Yeah, it was a non-trivial scene to, to, to put together. It really was. They, we we spent a good a good amount of time. That was one of the that was one of the uh, 
sound building days when you and I were actually hunting together for for uh, different sounds. And uh, it, it, we took a fair amount of time to locate what we needed. Uh, we a lot we threw a lot of them out. Yeah, we sat in my apartment, ate burgers, and my neighbors probably think I'm insane. Yeah. Walked down the hallway and hearing honks and tweets and screams. <laughs> like, what the hell is this guy doing in there? Yeah, but, yeah but, we threw a lot of stuff out to find, you know, stuff that sounded perfectly right. But but the one of the – outside of the, the – actually, the sound effects were in some ways easy compared to finding royalty-free music. Yeah, the music. We, we A lot of care went into the music. Yeah, tr- that felt authentic to the time because uh, – there, first, there had to be dramatic intro and outro music that felt like old thriller or suspenseful mysteries that would have been airing in this late 30s, early 40s time mm-hmm. period. But for the sound of the network, you couldn't just throw on Vinnie Goodman. No. You couldn't throw on you know, some of the really you know syncopated, sing, 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 big band jazz of the time because the networks had to be mainstream and we yeah. had to find like safe – white people, mainstream jazz, mm. and syrupy Hollywood symphony music for the commercials. Yeah. And it was not an easy task. And actually, some of the music we chose, Ryan, was was actually from the 40s. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it has that feel, though. I mean, when, uh, uh, when Zach Thompson comes on talking about the Ford Tuesday evening hour, that music is perfect. You know, the music playing under him is perfect. And... Uh, uh, I mean, I think that sets the whole world right there. That song choice is goes so far toward making you accept. Okay, this is a. I'm listening to a recording of a, a 1939, uh, an artifact from early radio. Uh, and I mean, the most significant thing about the, uh, about our music selections is not the music we chose, but the vast volume of music we discarded. Yeah, you, all, yeah. You you look for something, and you think needle in a haystack. Yeah. Even with search terms and Boolean searches, it was just a lot of slogging. Yeah, because a lot of people. Well, here's my 1930s style music. But you can tell it's modern. You can tell it was recorded on a synthesizer or a, a, a electronically, for instance. We need music where the violins are really violins and uh, the woodwinds are really woodwinds. We don't want – you know, you can tell. You can, you can tell, oh, this has the right feel, but it was, it was generated in a computer and that doesn't have the right sound. No, it's, it's, it's too sterile. Exactly. And if you, if you don't get music that sounds – like the, uh, the opening – song that we used, mm-hmm. uh, there's a little bit of a radio hiss over it. There's a little bit of a, a record pop over it, uh, I think, because it was probably actual period. Yeah. If it was not actual period, whoever did that recreated it flawlessly. Beautifully, yeah. Uh, and, and, so, and speaking of radio hisses, uh, you you also, like, we wanted the newsroom and the cuts from the, the you know, from different scene to scene to have a certain, like, warble and hiss yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and popping sound of rough, quick cuts of, you know, old radio tube radio. Yeah. Know, this is pre-electronic era and, um, and, and, and getting the sound of the newsroom for just the background of Wash Perry and, and, uh, and Gilda Collins was, was also important. So we went around and like, we hunted down the sounds of old teletypes, old teletypes, old telephones. Uh, and of course that's, that is inaccurate. Uh, there is no way a radio newsroom would have running teletypes and telephones in the background simply because why would they do that? Uh, they would isolate people in a booth 
so they would be as quiet as possible. But this is one of those things where you sacrifice accuracy to mood. And you immediately know you're in a, a newsroom with that. One of, the, one of the good things about the, the teletypes and telephones is we can cut back to them and allow the actors a pause before they start speaking again because you know where you are. You know, it's so important to know where you are immediately. In a radio play, you don't have any visual cues. And that newsroom thing was like, okay, well, we know exactly we're, we're, we're back in the main scene. Uh, so, prop, it, you know, yes, folks listening out there, I know in the 1930s they didn't actually put teletypes in the newsroom with the mic- with the microphones. I'm aware of that. Uh, well, we're also aware that P-51 Mustangs weren't <laughs> flying when the Martians Exactly, yeah. But, you know, uh, but, uh, we, so, had, we tried to get it close. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you sacrifice. Uh, you, you don't let accuracy be the enemy of good. So Yeah, and accuracy, schmaccuracy, schlock sells. So. Occasionally you make sacrifices to accuracy for the sake of, of atmosphere. So. Yeah. So, Ryan, uh, you, you drove yourself nearly mad with marathon days of editing. Yeah, uh, I you know, I honestly don't know how many hours this is, of editing this is. Uh, it was at least 48 by the time I got close to done with a rough cut, and there's been time since then. So I would say we put in, between all of us, we must have put in over 100 hours. Easily. On, on just this one episode. Easily. Um, I, I, I know I spent whole days, and if I added them all up, you know, with, with sound rounding mm-hmm. up and music rounding up and I did, writing and all of it. I did a couple of marathon editing sessions uh, where it was, you know, like 10, 12 hours of nothing but editing uh, on, on my weekends uh, for this because it's, A, it's it's getting five, six, ten layers of sound, you know, depending on what the scene is and balancing all that, making sure everything happens on time. Uh, but also, as I said, we we assembled the dialogue in many cases literally sentence by sentence, line by line. Uh, so every time somebody would speak a line, that would be a, a significant process to cut that line out of the larger file and save it as its own file and balance it and uh, uh, run the compression software on it so it would sound the same as – and then save it as a new file, and then transport that file over to the different editing program. So, I mean, but what were one gonna... sentence could take four or five minutes well, to yeah, prepare. Well, yeah, but what were we going to do? Because we had uh, source material. Where some of us were in the studio exactly. here, here in Denver, but we had uh, people in Michigan and in Chicago. Precisely. Uh, in Houston and Yeah, and, Maryland, and sometimes there's a, definite, uh, there's a definite sound difference between City. two yeah. people. But yeah. it's also that's also intentional, though, because Missouri, we're, ta- yeah. we're you know, we have – are people in in the the studio talking to people across the country? So, like I I added a, a static to whenever Professor Pearson talks because he's always calling from a, a terrible landline in the midst of some horrible crisis. So there's static under his voice. He sounds different than everybody else. Yeah. Um. But yeah, uh, yeah. It's 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 a, hours. 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 Easily a hundred hours. And, and between everybody. And then, like in our promotion, uh, we we had you know I mean we we this was truly a collaborative effort, uh, but we had some poster art uh, done by Mystery Scribble Theater artist uh, Jamie Hitchcock. Uh, it was wonderful art. It, just it so feels gorgeous. it feels like a '60s hardcover version of War of the Worlds. Uh, it also has sort of an Art Deco, not Art Deco, but it looks like. Uh, like 1930s propaganda, propaganda art, like WPA art. 
yeah, WPA, you know, we can do this. Yeah, yeah, which is perfect. It looks like WPA art. It's beautiful. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, like, Jamie and I went back and forth via Facebook Messenger, and I was like, uh, she, she, she got really excited about the radio play when I first pitched it to mm-hmm. her, and I, and I said, well, do you want to do some uh, poster art? She said, absolutely. And uh, she said, what do you want? And I said, well, maybe 1930s feel uh, and uh, people cowering in fear – uh, as tripods loom over them and rain down death and destruction. Mm. And she just went, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was totally on board. I, you know, yeah. So that was a s- successful sales pitch. But she, yeah, has, so. she has three purple tripods looming over the landscape and just blasting a row of houses. In, yeah, into, like just disintegrating just, houses. Just, yeah, yeah, turning them into dust yeah. with their heat rays. And it's really wonderfully ominous. Yeah, I'm, and it, it, it is. If the WPA had put out a poster advertising Death by Martian, that's what it would look like. It's, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah, so, so thanks, Jamie. That was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and uh, wh- why don't we move on to our next segment? Yeah, now let's move on to our next audio postcard and uh, hear what person has to say. Due to scheduling conflicts, I wasn't able to interview Erica Rodriguez, but she was so kind as to record an audio postcard for the project anyway. Take it away, Erica. Hello, this is Erica Rodriguez Hilton. You may know me as just Erica Rodriguez, the one who runs the D13 House of MST3K, the the, uh, group on my favorite, favorite social media outlet, Facebook. If you don't know, please join. We have a lot of fun. Um, I am currently... Moonlighting as a comedy writer on the Revival League podcast. And for the War of the Worlds, or our Halloween special, I did commercials. And on a regular basis, I write the sketch. A very adamant stance. Um, Many of you have probably heard it. If you are a avid listener of the Revival League podcast, I will be writing the upcoming Valentine's Day holiday special, Eddie Poe. Ooh, now what is that? It combines Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart with a very Charlie Brown Valentine. So how in the hell do I tie that together? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned. In the meantime, you can stay tuned to the Revival League podcast. And I will continue to write these sketches from here in Miami. The land that time forgot. Or the land that time left in 1985. Until then, enjoy the War of the Worlds Halloween special of the Revival League podcast. Love y'all and see you on the Deep 13 House of MST3K. Thanks, Erica. And thank you for joining me this evening here on Revival League Postcards. Good night, everyone. Thank you, person inserted here. (laughs) So... So guys, this—I mean—that uh, this—if anybody is is bothered to listen to this because they're as big a world of the war war of the world's nerds as we are, uh, just remember, 
Final thoughts. Uh, you can find our radio broadcast. It's it's going to sit out there. Uh, it, it'll sit out there in perpetuity. Uh, it's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, uh, YouTube, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, it's available for uh, streaming or download. Uh, so so please go check it out if you haven't. And um, we have another. Uh, we we had so much fun on this uh, podcast. We've decided we're going to do it again. And again, and again, we're gluttons for punishment, you know, because Ryan doesn't need sleep. Yeah. You know, screw that. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm taking the lead on the next radio play, which is going to be a, a Christmas special. Well, when you say taking the lead, you mean writing the script. You right. I'm not You're acting. still going to force me to uh, – you're still going to force me to edit this. Oh, yeah. Ah, you're paid. <laughs> I don't feel too bad. But uh, the – but – I am taking the lead on the writing. Yeah. I'm the head writer, and it's a daunting project, and I'm about slightly more than halfway done. Uh, and with ra- ra- racing the clock here, but we're going to do uh, a, a reimagining of a Christmas Carol. Yeah. As if the British Empire went full on cannibal. <laughs> I've and, read uh, what Greg has written so far. It's very good. And it's called Soylent Scrooge. Or Christmas is made of people, <laughs> and uh, it's it's uh, silly, and it's it's definitely a black comedy. And uh, hope you'll tune in uh, when that airs uh, in mid December. So um, again, Ryan, uh, take us out. You you had the uh, you, you you put your heart and soul into War of the Worlds. Uh, so we appreciate all that you did. So uh, just your, your final thoughts. Uh, this was a blast. This was uh, just, it was something that I've always sort of thought would be fun to do. And uh, and it was. I mean, it was a lot of work for everybody involved. And But everybody just did such a great job. And uh, I'm really, really proud of it. I was shocked at how well it turned out, considering none of us had ever done anything like this before. So I'm just, I'm really glad to have had the chance. And I'm really proud of, of what we created. And I hope people enjoyed it. And one one final plug, and that's uh, uh, Eric. Uh, we're coming back in 2018 with season two of uh, Junk Mouth. So Certainly. just remind us about that. Uh, Junk Mouth is where you know we get all kinds of you know strange, interesting, fascinating, sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful junk foods, and I feed them to Greg and Ryan. And they've almost killed us a couple of times. No joke. No hyperbole. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, stay tuned for that. It'll be back next year, season two. And uh, what else can we say? But thanks for listening and keep watching the skies. Can have an expedition at the dino hotel.